Well, we're going to pick up on, uh, on the, the, the series that we've been going through, or that you guys have been going through, uh, Philippians. And we're going to pick up in chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, and I'll read that in just a second. You know, one of the things that's common to all of us is uh, that we have a, a tendency, a natural inclination to do what we desire. And I know you're thinking, wow, that is profound, <laughs> that we do what we desire. But here's the problem with that, that what we desire is not always right. And in fact, most of the times, my desires are misleading. It's why throughout this letter, Paul instructs the Philippian church to work against their sinful inclinations. In the passage that you looked at last week, at the very beginning of chapter 2, Paul tells the Philippian church to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, why would Paul have to say that? Because their natural tendency is to do things out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's where our natural desires tend to go towards selfishness. See, left to ourselves, we live for ourselves. Well, one of the things that Paul does in this letter is outline for the church and for, for those who believe how to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Jerry talked a little bit about this last week. The bulk of, of the passage that he focused on talks about how Jesus, God's only son, humbled himself and took on flesh. He, he died the death that we deserve and he was raised from the dead and now rules his kingdom from heaven. That changes everything. It changes everything. Uh, this is the example, and not only the example, this is the power for us to truly change, to truly have desires that are oriented towards God and to obey with joy. Well, let me read here from tonight's passage. It says Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me pray before we get into the, the message. God, I pray that as we look at your word tonight, that you would teach us, that through your spirit, you would make your word real to us, and that you would do so in a way that gives us a desire to give glory to you, in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, obviously, I, I don't know all of you, or, or, or most of you, and especially I don't know anybody who's watching. I, I can't tell who you are, so I, I can't assume a whole lot about you. So I, I want to say this. If you're new to Christianity, it's possible that it seems that as you look at Christians, and, and when you kind of around what's going on at Crew, that it may seem like a bunch of random rules and regulations that may or may not be helpful in living a good life, as you think about Christianity. If you are a Christian, it's possible that you confuse the role of obedience to God's rules, His law, and in doing so, we can lose the joy associated with obedience. Do you hear that? Where we confuse the, where the role of good works or obedience plays in the life of the Christian. 
And if we confuse that with trying to earn God's love, we can lose the joy that's associated with true obedience. Now, now both of these scenarios are very common, either looking at Christianity and thinking, it's just a bunch of random rules and regulations, or being within Christianity and thinking, I have to be good for God to like me. I want to debunk those. I want to talk about what, where the gospel fits and where obedience fits in the life of those who follow after God. Now, the backdrop to this uh, section of Philippians, and really the, the backdrop to the whole New Testament, is the history of God's people, Israel. Now, uh, what the history shows is that it's impossible, or no, sorry, it is possible to be associated with God's people and still not understand the good news of how God loves his people and what a proper response to that love looks like. It's possible to be associated with God's people and, and, and miss the point. You see, even Israel missed the point, or a good, a good amount of, of God's people missed the point. They were enslaved for 400 years to Egypt. And when God delivered them out of that slavery, the Bible calls that the Exodus, they were promised a land, and, and they, they were moving towards that land. But while they were in between leaving slavery and entering the promised land, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the midst of that, they lost sight of what it meant to be the people of God following after what God had done for them and, and delivering them from their slavery. Now, the Bible, or as we look at the, the Old Testament, the Exodus is, is what's called a blueprint or a foreshadowing of the work that God would do in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Israel is a picture of us. They were helpless, they were enslaved. And they were hopeless apart from God doing something to change their situation. They couldn't change it on their own. But God worked and delivered them from their sin. Their part was to follow him in faith. Now, in the midst of him delivering them, he gave them his law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, these are, these are not all the things that God has required of his people, but they're a good summary of what God has required of his people but they were never a way for his people to earn his love. Rather, God's commandments are always there to demonstrate a love toward God who has already dealt graciously with us. It was later in my life until I realized that. You realize that the Ten Commandments are rooted in grace? Before God gives us even the first commandment, do you know what he says? You can look at it in Exodus 20 at another time, but he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It starts with grace. It starts with this. I have done this for you. And then he gives the law. Here's how you live in response to what I've done for you. He gives the law. But grace always precedes the law. Uh, in, in my seminary courses, we were taught uh, when we teach obedience to God, it's always rooted in, in what is true first. What is true and then what to do. Right? What is true is who God is and what he has done for us. And then the what to do comes from what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. So our what to do never is preceding God's love. It's not I do this and then God loves me. It's God loves me, therefore I do this. That was true in the Old Testament and it's true all the way up through now in the New Testament and what Paul is writing to the Philippian church and really to us. The motivation and power to obey the law comes from the fact that God has already worked in us. And Paul reiterates that here in Philippians. 
You see, the command to work out our salvation is rooted in grace. I don't know if you, when you when you read this passage in Philippians 2, and you come to that section where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For years, I was confused with that. Well, I didn't think I was supposed to have to work out my salvation. I thought that it's all grace. Why do I, do I, am I adding something to my salvation? Am I, am I doing something to contribute so that God will love me? No. It's not work for your salvation. It's work out the implications of what God has already done. And it leads to a grace-based obedience, not, not a guilt-based or a, 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 a obedience that means I have to earn God's love. It's grace-based. Now, again, the context of this is um, when, when Paul says, you have always obeyed so much or so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, he's contrasting the Philippian church with the failure of God's people, the Israelites, during the Exodus. See, Moses chastised the Israelites for their faithlessness. They were God's people. They were the recipients of his grace, and yet they didn't live in light of that. In, in Deuteronomy, uh, he, uh, Moses says this, uh, after he writes down the law, he commands that the law be displayed for the Israelites so that they will remember it. And he says this about them, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? He's saying, you couldn't even obey when I'm here. What's going to happen when I'm gone? We, uh, one, of, one of the things that my family decided to do during the, the whole lockdown with, with COVID, we, we joined with like half of America and we bought a puppy, right? And I, I'd been adamantly against getting a dog. And my, my, my wife and my daughter especially wore me down to the point where we decided to buy a, a, a puppy. Um, it, it's, if you're familiar with Bernadoodles, he, he's half standard poodle and half Bernie's mountain dog. And so he's six months old and he's literally like a horse. Um, just, just a big doofus of a dog. Uh, doesn't, doesn't understand how his body works and he knocks everything over, including my son. And one of the things we didn't know about him, but we found out pretty quickly, is that he loves cat litter. Not to use cat litter. He loves to eat cat litter and anything that's in the cat litter. And he would do this even when he was in our presence. And we would be, you've got to be kidding me. Stop doing that. And he's kind of learned a little bit not to do it when I'm around because I get very angry at him. But the minute I turn my back and I walk away, it's in our garage, the litter box. If I'm like mowing the lawn and he's out and he gets in the garage, he's in that litter box like, I don't know what analogy. He's in it so quick. And I know he's in there even if I don't catch him because when I see him later and he looks up at me with this big dopey face, there's litter just stuck in his, you know, beard. And, and oh, it's just horrible. It's disgusting. What, what I want him to think is this. I love my master so much that even though cat poop is so desirous, I choose not to, eat, not to eat it because of what they do for me. Unfortunately, he's a dog. <laughs> he doesn't think like that. It, it, guilt with him only lasts so long. Like Guilt only lasts as long as I'm there. And as soon as I'm gone, the guilt is gone and he's back into the cat litter. The alluring nature of cat litter is too much for him. How much more for us is the alluring nature of sin and sinful desires, the desire to do what we want and not what God wants? If we are only operating out of a guilt with God, that is only going to motivate us for so long. And eventually we're going to turn and go back and do what we want. It was the story of Israel. It's the story of humanity. We will always 
go after what our desires are, and most of the time our desires are not God-honoring. But Paul contrasts Israel's failure to obey. He contrasts that with the Philippians' Uh, their ability and their desire to obey, not just in Paul's presence, but he says, even more so, when I'm not around, you're obeying even more so. It's incredible. What this shows is that their obedience is motivated by an understanding of God's work in their lives. It's interesting, the word obey that's used here is closely related to the word here. One, one commentator, in talking about uh, this word that's used for obedience, he says, in one sense, Obedience is applied hearing. That's a really interesting way to say it. So you hear truth, and you hear what you're supposed to do. That's not enough. Obedience is to apply what you have heard to your life. And so the obedience of the Philippian church is it, it's, it's applied hearing. They've heard God's word. They know what he has done, and they know what to do. And not only do they know it, they apply it, and they live their lives out in an obedience that follows after God's grace in their life. And their obedience was not just so that they would look good for Paul. Their obedience was lived out before their true audience, God. And so for you, there's all sorts of pressures for you to, to perform and to look a certain way and to act a certain way. Your ultimate goal is not just to look good for Jerry or for Grace or for your parents or for your professor or, or whoever you're trying to impress, the way you live your life, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, ultimately your obedience is not for any of those other sources, but it is to please the one who has given you everything in Jesus Christ, the audience of one. So when Paul gets to the section where he says, work out your salvation, he is saying, work out the implications of the salvation that God has granted you through Jesus. He's not saying you have to earn your salvation because that would contradict what he says everywhere else and what the whole Bible says everywhere else. It's not you have to work towards it. He is saying that because of what Christ has done, we have a responsibility to live in light of that truth, working it out because of that. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a, of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a pastor, a theologian, and a writer in Germany during World War II. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and in that he has two phrases. He uses a phrase called cheap grace and costly grace. And he says cheap grace is this. It's, it's hearing and knowing what God has done for you and then saying, since God has done this for me and forgives me anyway, I can live however I want. And then to live a life saying, well, I'm going to be forgiven doesn't matter. That's cheap grace because it's not taking into consideration if God has done this, we should live in a particular way to show our gratitude and our love for what he has done. And that's where the costly grace comes in. He says that grace was costly both for God and giving up his son. And both it's costly for us as we live in light of that. We will deny our sinful inclinations and move toward obedience that comes from what God desires for us. As recipients of grace, we should be expected to live in light of that grace. We have, I mentioned we have, we have two, my wife and I have two young children, a four-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter. And as, as parents, we provide all of the essentials for them to live and to thrive, right? We even provide some non-essentials like toys that make noise, glitter, Legos that impale my feet. <laughs> it, 
When we ask them to do something, we hope that their response is something like this. Yes, in light of what you've done for me, Father, and all that you provide for my well-being, I would love to do what you've asked me to do. In reality, what we get is a lot more resistance, a lot more tears, a lot more pushback than what we would like. But the thing is, is I'm no different. In light of what God has done for me through Jesus Christ, what is my attitude and response to what God requires of me? It's a lot of pushback, tears, a lot of bargaining. It's not that obedience that should stem from what God has done for me. I wrestle with, with living out my salvation with the, with the right perspective, and I take for granted God's grace all the time. I need to be reminded daily of the gospel. The gospel is not just what saves me from my sin. The gospel is the daily good news that helps me obey. It is the power that helps me grow in holiness. It's not just the, the one-time get-me-out-of-jail-free card. The gospel is what I need every day to grow in my godliness and in my delight in the Lord. So for those who have been pardoned of their sins, who have eternal life waiting for us, we must respond by faith and obedience with gratitude. The obedience to God is not about looking good when he's watching. It's about demonstrating a gratitude toward God for his love in all things. It's an obedience that springs from joy. Man, I wrestle with that. Obedience that comes from joy. I know like obligatory obedience, like I just should just, you know, buck up and do it. What does it look like to have a joy that motivates my obedience? A joy that understands the gospel so that I, when I deny what I want and do what I should, it's not a, it's a, I get to do this because God is so good. And I want you to know I wrestle with that. <laughs> That's hard. And yet we're called toward that. But it leads, it leads to a proper view of our sin and God's holiness. There's that phrase where he says, fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The context for that is Psalm 2, 11, where the psalmist says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing, with trembling. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's a fear associated with reverence, a proper perspective. He is God and we are not. That trembling, it's not equated with terror, but rather the trembling associated with a healthy awe of God's holiness, which also includes joy and rejoicing, which is kind of an odd combination, terror and joy together. This fear and trembling is similar, similar to the way you might envision standing before someone who has great authority or prestige. It's not a fear of condemnation, but rather a fear of reverence and awe. When, uh, when I was in middle school, I, I'd lived outside of Philadelphia, and I was a big Philadelphia, I still am a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. And uh, I had an opportunity to meet um, Reggie White. Uh, if you guys know Re Reggie White, he, he was a defensive end for the Eagles and then for the Green Bay Packers, uh, just an amazing football player. And he wrote a book, he was a Christian man, he wrote a book called uh, The Minister, I think it was called The Minister of Defense. And um, I went to this bookstore to get my book signed. And I remember standing in line thinking, I am going to meet Reggie White. And the closer I got to this, this larger-than-life man, I was afraid. But it wasn't a fear of, I think Reggie's going to tackle me, right? <laughs> He's going to obliterate me like he does quarterbacks. 
No, it was this fear of, I'm in the presence of greatness. And there's this fear and terror and also this joy because Reggie White took my book and he made it, wrote a note to me personally and then signed it. And so there's this combination of fear and joy all at once in being in his presence. Understanding God's holiness along with our understanding of his gift of grace to us who don't deserve that should produce that reverence and awe towards God with gratitude. And even more so that joy because not only, I'm not giving God a book to sign. My name is written in his book. My name is written down as one of his children. And so there's a reverence and an awe and a joy and a love that is coupled together with a holy God who I can also call my father. And from those things comes this idea of obedience then is birthed out of that because we have such a great God who has gone to such great heights and great lengths for us. It puts obedience and motivation in the proper place, knowing that we can't do this on our own. You see, God must be the initiator. He must change our desires. It's why when he says it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, what he's saying there is this. God is the one who's given you the new desires, the will. Because apart from him, my desire is only sin. It's only me. So God has worked a new will in me, and God has given me the, the ability to obey, to will and to work, to, to desire and to obey for his good pleasure. Apart from him, I can't do that. God is the one who has given me that ability through Jesus Christ. So even our love for God and our, our obedience are gifts from God. Now, really quickly, I'm going to focus on the second section of this, of this passage starting in verse 14, because the second part of this passage shows what the practical outworking of our obedience looks like. He says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. <laughs> Again, he says that because he knows that that is such a natural inclination for us. And he's pulling from God's people's history. Israel themselves were masters at the grumbling and disputing when they were in the wilderness the idea of, of, of ingratitude and complaining, of, a, of an attitude that wants to resist a higher authority and live for self. See, there should be no room for ingratitude in the Christian, nor should there be a quarrelsome spirit that undermines the authority of God in our lives. So that we as Christians together would stand out from the world. He goes on and says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That idea of being blameless and innocent doesn't mean perfect. None of us are perfect. But the idea of being blameless and innocent is this. Are you living your, your life in such a way that you are free or avoiding the appearance of evil? Or you can't have charges against you of being a this or this or this. But the, the blameless is walking with integrity. And the innocence has to do with moral innocence, that you are living your life in a way that is pursuing what God has desired for how you are to live. Again, it's not perfection, but it's living your life in a way where there's no scandal, no appearance of evil, no way for Christ's name to be defamed because of our actions and our behaviors. We, we say, I am a Christian. I, I believe in Jesus. I've been changed. My life should be a reflection of God and his holiness. And if my life is bringing 
scandal to the church, scandal to crew, scandal to the name of Christ, there's a disconnect between what God has done and how we're living now. Now, there's grace for when we fail in that. But he's saying, here is the proper avenue and the proper direction of the Christian life, which is to live seeking to be blameless and innocent as a response to the grace that God has given us. So that we would live up to being called children of God. It's huge to be called a child of God. It's the identity that leads to our living out our salvation. We, we do this in our own families. Thinking of, of, of my, my wife and my kids, there are times when we have to sit down with our children, especially our, our daughter who's older, and say, you are a frost. We don't, we don't act like that in this family. We, we, don't, we don't say that. We, we don't, we don't, that's not how we behave. In our, in our family, we, we, we love our siblings. <laughs> we're kind to them. or We're kind to our neighbors. We have to reorient. You are part of the Frost family, and here's what we expect to live out who we are. It's the same thing in the family of God. You bear the mark. If you are a Christian, you bear the mark of our Father. And we are called to live into that identity as a child of God. Do you resemble your Heavenly Father? Would people be able to look at you and say, you, you know what, you remind me of someone. Who is that? Oh, yeah, our Father. Because in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, which certainly Israel was compared to that because they were disobedient, we live in a crooked and twisted generation now. The Philippian church did too. It's nothing new and new, unique to our time. But when we live... A life of obedience, again, that's motivated by grace. It's not something that I just do because God enables me to do that. It says we shine like stars. You know, like when you've seen like one of those, uh, have you ever been out on like just a pitch black night and that first star just pops? You start seeing the stars pop, 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 and it's just brilliant against the backdrop of the dark sky. That is the Christian witness in a crooked and twisted generation. The light of the gospel shining forth in the darkness. And that light continues to shine by holding fast to the word of life, or to the word of God. Do you know it? Do you love it? Do you cherish it, trust it, model your thoughts and actions based on what God has given us in his word? Because when we hold fast to the word of God, the light of the gospel will shine through us. So I want to encourage you, as you understand what God has done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, read his word. Know his word so that you can know who he is more. Know yourself better, and in doing so, come to a better and deeper and richer understanding of the grace that God has exhibited toward you. And may that then lead to a life that exhibits awe and wonder and love because of the goodness of the gospel, which leads us to rejoicing together, which Paul closes the section and says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me, because there is a unity and a partnership together in believers to honor our King Jesus by how we live together. So yes, this is individualistic, but it's more so corporate, that we together as believers have the opportunity to work out our, when he says work out your salvation, that word your is actually plural. He's talking to the church, to God's people, you, people of God, Work out the implications of your salvation so that the watching world will notice and that our king will be honored. There's a big difference between guilt-based motivation, which says I should, I should, I ought to, 
I need to, again, that fades away. But grace-based motivation says this, he has already done it, therefore I get to. It's very different. I, I had a, a friend, he's, he's actually a pastor here with me, he talks about uh, being a, a wrestling, a high school wrestling coach, and, uh, and he and another a Christian man were coaches together, and what they would do with their team to counter a lot of the ways these kids have been coached before, rather than what can you do for me, he would say, they would look at the, 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 the wrestler before he went on the, on the mat, you are loved, you are cherished, you have what it takes, and no matter what happens on that mat, you are loved and cherished. Now go rip off his head. <laughs> right? Like, this idea of like, no matter what happens, you're loved. Now go do your best in light of that. The gospel gives us that freedom. In Christ, you are loved fully. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. If his son died for you while you were a sinner, there's nothing you can do that can make him say, whoops. And we get the opportunity then to say thank you by how we live our life. I encourage you all to think about the implications of this. What does it mean to have the gospel of Jesus Christ truly affect our desire to obey, especially when our desires to disobey are so strong? May we be saturated in the truth so it drowns out all other desires and that we might live for Christ. I'm going to pray here in just a second. Uh, I want to invite any of you uh, here in this room or anywhere else if you're around the church. I'm going to be here afterwards if you want to chat, you want to talk. Um, I'll be out in the parking lot over by where all your cars are parked. So uh, feel free to say hey. And if not, I'll just wave as you walk by. <laughs> That's totally <laughs> fine too. So let me pray. God, I thank you that uh, we have this unbelievable truth as part of our story, which is you have pursued us while we were yet enemies and rebels. And that anything good we have is because of what you have done for us and what you have worked in us. And I pray that for those that believe this, that you would truly transform us to grab hold of that truth that we might live in a way that then honors you, loves you, and shows our gratitude toward you. And for those who don't yet believe, would you work faith in them that they would grab hold of this message and live in the freedom of that grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.